Welcome to a brand new series of the Rock and Roll podcast. We're on series six already. And in this episode, I talk to Mid Yore, who is touring the UK next April. I was also given a Honda Rebel to try out, the super cool CMX 1100 Rebel, which has been great fun. I'll tell you all about that. And I answer your any questions. But let's start with a chat with Mid Yore. Please welcome Mid Yore. How are you? Very well, thank you. Good. Now, celebrating 40 years since the release of a couple of great Ultravox albums, uh, one being Rage in Eden and the other one, The Quartet, does it feel like it's been that long? Oh, God, no, it doesn't. I mean, I, I think I've got to that age where everything feels as though it was last week. You know, I'm, I'm <laughs> dreadful with dates, I'm dreadful with timings. Uh, so, uh, so 40 years just sounds a, a, a horrendous amount of time. But yeah, it is 40 years old. What was it like making those albums, just thinking back to that time? Do you know what was exciting? Um, you know, we'd just come off the back of the Vienna album, which is obviously was, was a, a, a massive turning point for us. Um, and, and we could afford to, to experiment a little bit. So rather than do what we did, you know, repeat the Vienna album, uh, you know, we, which we recorded in three weeks, we decided to, because we had the wherewithal, and a little bit of you know ego to allow us to do it. We went off to the German countryside with a German record producer Connie Plank, uh, with no songs, and wrote and recorded the entire album in a farmyard in the middle of nowhere. And and that that's that that was a major factor in the overall sound and feel of that particular record. So it was um, it was interesting. I mean, we could have gone to the Bahamas. <laughs> had we known better but no we were young and naive <laughs> and uh george martin was the producer on one of them and george uh we we had worked with connie plank on vienna and uh and the region eden album and we just wanted to shake things up a little bit so we asked the fabulous uh, sir george martin uh if he could uh, produce the album for us and yeah, initially he kind of he said no because he wasn't really pr producing at the time but his daughter was a big fan, so I think she talked him into it. And we found ourselves making this album with this 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 mega god of, of the music industry, uh, which was a, a, an amazing experience. I bet it was. And you mentioned Vienna there. Um, obviously, that's your standout track. And you described it in the past as um, being sparse in places and typically over the top in some parts. Would you still describe it like that? I mean, how did that song come about? Uh, it was it was a classic example of uh, four people working in harmony, working in sync. You know, I just joined the band. Uh, I was finding my feet uh, musically with the rest of them. The other three guys had been together for a few years, uh, so I was the newbie. I was the new boy, and um, we sat for like four days in a rehearsal studio. I walked in with with a, a key line. You know, this means nothing to me, Vienna, uh, but nothing else. And the rest of it is really down to, if you break it down to its component parts, it could never have been Vienna without that particular drum pattern or without that synthesized bass pattern or Billy Curry's keyboards and viola. Um, so it was a classic example of four people just experimenting, not trying to write a hit song, not trying to make a hit record, trying to make an interesting piece of music. Uh, and again, I put it down to a massive part of it is naivety. You know, when you're young, you think you can do anything. And uh, and it could easily have just slipped between the cracks and the floorboards and never been heard. 
but we were very fortunate that uh, it got a few plays on the radio and it just resonated with people. Did you have any idea that it would do that? No, absolutely none. I mean, we knew it was, we knew it was special. We knew we had done something in the studio uh, technically uh, that was quite advanced, uh, you know, speeding tracks up with electronics and, and things, uh, and very, very basic technology. And we knew we had done something special. And, and at the end of the day, and I'm sure most bands do this, uh, as you finish a track, uh, a song, a recording, as you go along over a recording period, at the end of the night, you play a couple of the tracks just to kind of feel if the, the tracks really are doing what you're hoping they're going to do. And Vienna used to get played every night and we'd walk away waiting on our taxis to go home to Little Flats. Uh, you'd play Vienna and say, OK, yeah, we did something interesting there. Whether whether it would make any difference to anybody in the planet or not was was irrelevant. And of course, it did race up the charts and we often uh, play it on absolute eighties anyway. But it sometimes features when we're doing a thing of songs that got to number two. And how did you feel when it was doing so well and then it got beaten by a kind of novelty song? Well, it wasn't just the novelty song. I mean, everyone knows that story because it's uh, it's 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 worth repeating many, 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 many times. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, John Lennon had just been murdered, and and uh, uh, one of John's songs kept us off the number one spot as well. So we went from the ridiculous to the sublime. Uh, you know, keeping us at number two. But you have to remember, you know, to have a record like Vienna in the charts at all was a massive achievement. So to get it to number two for the, the month or so that it was there was just outstanding. And as I said, it changed everything for us. You know, instead of playing sticky carpeted clubs, all of a sudden we were playing large theatres and big venues. And it, it kind of changed everything. Uh, but it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes when you have a track that's that big, uh, people expect you to come up with things equally big. It's, it, it, they happen once in a lifetime, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody and Wuthering Heights and stuff like that. They happen once in a once in a blue moon. Yes, so hard to follow up after doing so well with something like that. Um, but going right back even further now, there was at one point you were in three huge bands: Ultravox, Visage, and um, Thin Lizzy, wasn't it? How did you cope with that? What was that period like? Well. Um, it, this came first, uh, funnily enough, uh, my, my, my old uh, rich kids cohort, uh, Rusty Egan, uh, and I used to hang out together in the final death throes of, of the rich kids. And, uh, and he said, well, wouldn't it be great if it happened in the studio with all our favourite musicians? You know, the guys from Magazine, uh, Billy Curry from Ultravox. And, and I said, yeah, let's, let's do it. So visage together. And through working on that, uh, I watched the Ultravox prior to me uh, fall apart. You know, the singer left, guitarist left, uh, they'd been dropped by the record label, and I thought, this is the band that I want to be in. And I ended up joining uh, joining Ultravox. And during that whole process, when I just started writing the Vienna album, I was putting the finishing touches to Fade to Grey uh, in the studio when I got the telephone call from Philip Liner saying, you know, we're in America. Can you come and finish the tour for us? Gary Moore's out the band, and uh, we've, we've got another three weeks to go opening up for Journey in these mega domes. And I'd never been to America, uh, so your first thought is, I'm not good enough. I'm not a good enough guitar player. Your second thought is, don't be stupid. <laughs> go. <laughs> it's, it's a classic opportunity. So I found myself on Concord uh, flying the next day 
uh, to oh, go wow. and join Thin Lizzy in New Orleans. And uh, within 24 hours, I was on stage with them, knowing that my heart was with Ultravox and I was coming back to Ultravox to finish off making the VN album. That's, uh, that's quite a big story, isn't it? Oh, well, it's, again, it's one of those things that happens once in a blue moon. Uh, and when I, when I talk to young musicians about, you know, what if I get the opportunity to do something I'm absolutely petrified of doing, I just tell them to do it and figure out how it works later. Never say no, say yes, and then try and step up to the mark. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it was a, an amazing thing. Good advice. Um, you mentioned like uh, things like Vienna only happening once in a lifetime, but actually it didn't just happen for you once because then there was Band-Aid, which was, you know, did you have any idea that that was going to be so massive? Not until, until we'd actually completed the recording. You know, uh, the song I've said many times is okay. It's not a great song. It's, it has no chorus. It's a, you know, I, I wouldn't advise anyone to construct a song like that. Um, but <laughs> as a, as a record, it works incredibly well. You know, I'd, I'd spent four days in my studio after, after Bob and I, had decided that we were going to try and do something to to, to initially raise a hundred thousand pounds. We thought we could raise that on the royalties that a, an artist would normally get at the time, uh, if we had a number one Christmas record. And we used all our friends to give it the clout that it needed, and um, and we ended up writing the song together. Uh, but I I never anticipated it was going to be this three ring circus, which it kind of had to be. You know, once you got, you know, George Michael and Paul Young and Bono and you know everybody Spandau and Duran all on the same record, which had never really happened before. Uh, you know, the media just jumped all over it. So it wasn't until I'd kicked everybody out of the studio because uh, I only had 24 hours to uh, to record all the vocals, record Phil Collins' drums and mix the record because it had to be in the pressing plant the next morning. Wow. Uh, so, so once I kicked everyone out and finished the actual record at like 8 o'clock in the morning, I jumped in my car to drive home. Bob took a cassette to uh, the BBC, to Radio 1. And as I'm driving home, I could hear on the radio Bob entering the studio and they played the cassette, which was unheard of. Nobody yeah. played cassettes. No. So they played the cassette, then they rewound it and they played it again. And at wow. that moment, before we sold record one, I knew we were on something that was huge and magnificent. You know? Must have been incredible to, uh, to experience that and then the way it exploded. And we're still talking about it all these years later. So you must be really proud of your achievements with that. Well, uh, stupidly, uh, neither of us, uh, Bob or I, uh, <laughs> thought that if you write a Christmas record, there's a very good chance it's going to get played every Christmas. You know, we, we could only see that one year. We could just see that 1984, 1985, that Christmas New Year period, and it would have one bite of the apple. And of course, every year it, it gets played. It's on compilation albums or whatever, and it keeps generating money for the trust because Bob and I gave the song to the the band-aid trust so it will carry on generating money for the cause long after we are gone yes absolutely uh, obviously you had all those wonderful experiences with different bands and collaborations and an incredible solo career as well and in fact now going on tour do you like touring i love touring and it's a it's really hit home uh you know it's something i've done uh, all my uh, musical life uh and of course uh, we all went through it, you know, we all went through lockdown and the whole COVID thing and, and everything ground to halt. And all of a sudden, something you've taken for granted, you know, going to see bands or performing on stage or whatever, was gone. And that's that's a scary prospect. So I really, 
really missed it. It's it's kind of like someone saying to you, uh, and for the next two and a half years, don't use your legs, you know, don't breathe, don't blink, you know, it's just yeah. what. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm I love performing. It's it's a major part. I mean, I think I think the recording side of things is the experimental stuff, uh, but the touring is going on there and going kerrang and making some lovely noises. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. And you're touring those two albums as well that I mentioned at the beginning. I am, yeah. We called it the Voice and Visions Tour because uh, the Voice is one of the tracks uh, from one album, and the Visions and Blues a track from the other. So we kind of glued them together. So we'll be doing that, and uh, you know, a bunch of hits as well. But yeah, really, really looking forward to it. It's great fun. Okay, well, we really look forward to seeing you, and thank you so much for joining me. Now it's time to try out the CMX 1100 Rebel by Honda. Well, looking at this bike, it is absolutely stunning to look at. Even the teens, my teenage girls, came in and said, that's a nice-looking bike. They said it looks retro, and, yeah, I guess it does, really. It's got a nice low seat, so if you are not particularly tall, this could be a perfect solution for you. Um, because I'm going to sit on it now, and my feet are planted on the ground and knees bent as well. Okay, let's get the keys out. So the keys, first of all, are two things to do. One is to do the steering lock. And uh, slightly unusual, the steering lock key is in a different place to the ignition. So just looking for it now. Oh yeah, it's right down here. It's right down above the mud guard of the front wheel. So turn that and unlock the front wheel. There you go. Apparently they've done this to keep the clutter away from the dashboard. I'll just take that out. Now the ignition key is not anywhere near the handlebars. The ignition key is down on my left, just under my left thigh. Another strange position. Let's put my phone away in my pocket. Okay, let's turn that key. Just backing out now using my feet before I turn the bike on. Oh, it's actually really light to use my legs to turn it backwards. Now let's start it up. An 1100 engine, so the size of a car engine on a bike. Now this is the DCT model, so if you want a cruiser and you can't be bothered with gears, this is the one for you. I'm just going to adjust that brake lever actually, turn that off. That lever feels too far away for me and I think there's a way of adjusting it on here. Okay, feet position. Um, your legs are at a 90 degree angle, so the foot pegs are forward uh, to the end of my thigh and then where my knee is they go straight down. And it's not as far forward as a normal cruiser where your legs are outstretched out front, but certainly not below you, which is what I'm used to. The riding position is something I'm going to have to get used to on this. Let's put it into drive. When you put your second foot up after you've pulled away, there's this period of time where I'm flapping around trying to find the pedal. It's just in such a weird position. Yep, there it is. What a beautiful sounding engine. 
The weight distribution feels very strange to me because on my NT1100, the, the engine is underneath me. In this bike, it's very much out in front. I mean, just weirdly out in front. I can really feel the weight being in a different position and it feels kind of odd. I don't feel fully in control of it, but that is literally because I'm just not used to it. Right, I've just turned right and cut into some traffic and uh, a little bit of a hair-raising moment there, but I managed to do it and I think because I'm so low to the ground, I felt quite in control of it really. So at slow speeds, really useful just to put your foot on the ground. I mean, I'm driving through a very busy London right now on a Friday afternoon rush hour. Now riding through London is not really what this bike's designed for. It's designed as a cruiser. It does have cruise control as well, which is easily usable on my uh, right hand. Oh wow, it's even got a little parking handbrake. Other than that, the gadgets are very minimal. It's all about style and looks on this. I'm at the traffic lights. I'm so low to the ground, I almost feel like I'm riding a kid's bike. This does come in several colours. I've got the bronze. The seat is not as comfortable as my NT1100. It's um, one of those, uh, what I call like a bicycle seat. It's just a little triangular thing, perfectly designed for one's bottom. Um, but the NT1100 is this huge, cushioned, lovely, soft, massive thing. <laughs> for my, well, actually I don't think I've got a large bum, but perhaps my bony bum needs a comfy seat. If I was to bring a pillion, they're basically sitting on the rear bumper on a tiny weeny little cushion pad, which is removable if you want to just go for the whole aesthetic looking single rider bike. As I'm edging forward, I keep knocking my shins on the feet pedals because they're just in such a weird place. Okay, let's imagine I'm now on a country lane and I'm not in the middle of London rush hour. I'm just cruising down the road. Yeah, I can see how this would work. My arms are outstretched. My legs are at a 90 degree angle. It's quite comfortable. I think it's just all the junctions and stopping and starting isn't really quite as good on this bike, but that's not what it's designed for. And that was the Honda CMX 1100 Rebel. Costs are around £10,000. It's got a parallel twin cylinder engine, Honda selectable torque control, wheelie control. I don't think I'll be doing a wheelie on that. Cruise control, three default riding modes, piggyback rear shock absorbers, a four piston radial mounted front brake caliper, and a six speed dual clutch transmission option, which is what I had. I thought it was fantastic compared to the Harley and other cruisers. Uh, this one is more for me because of the DCT, which by the way, if you haven't tried and you may have your preconceived ideas about the DCT, maybe you tried it when it first came out, please do have another go with it. It has improved drastically. It's brilliant. You've also got the paddles to override it as well if you did want to go through the gears. But get the DCT in the Honda Rebel. It is worth it. Now, last weekend, my partner and friends went to Butlins, the 80s weekender. I was going to go, but I ended up doing a gig at a brewery instead, so I stayed behind. They took our big seven-seater car. I was left with one of their cars, which was possibly one of the world's smallest cars, a Fiat 500. I'm with Kelly, and I'm going to borrow her tiny weeny little car for the weekend. Tell me about this car. This car is named The Shoe because it is so small. <laughs> we call it the Louboutin of shoes. It's red. Um, let me see. It's auto or manual. Oh, we have to open her up. 
Oh, it's so cute. It's a little Fiat. It is cute. But next week I won't have it. I'll be getting a new one. So oh, what? A new one of these? Or? No, no, no. Oh, right, no. okay. So this, so put it on. Then you go like that. See there? It yeah. says one auto. So if it was, hang on. So if it's, if I click it again, see the one? That oh, means okay. it's just in like the gears. So one. So I use it in auto. Yeah. So just make sure it says one auto, and you're ready to go. This is probably That's the smallest cute. car I've ever seen. Yeah, okay. This is cute. This is cute. So why are you selling? So, no. Jess will have this. Oh, okay. So yeah. you're staying in the family. So Jessica, yeah, my daughter will have this. I'm getting a Honda CRV, which I love. My oh, I test drove one of them recently. That's my fourth one now. So I love the boot space. They're massive. So compared to this, which is just got two little bags and that's the whole boot <laughs> okay so when i put all my magic in i have to push the front seats the whole magic just fits in here. literally magic just to yep. explain who you oh, are yeah mrs lolly so do magic shows for children at the weekend so obviously this car just about fits all the magic in um but not my lunch unfortunately because, <laughs> <laughs> because the disco lights go on the front seat <laughs> So I'm driving this, you're using our car to go to Butlin's weekender. Yes. So have a great weekend. Yes, and you have fun driving. <laughs> I'll tell you what was really cool about this car was the colour matching like steering wheel and dashboard in like a cream. And then some of the outside of the car actually going across the front in this beautiful red styling as well. So certainly looked cute. I got used to its tininess and found it very useful actually for nipping in and around London. All the little trips you have to do. Three point turns are so easy. Yeah, I quite liked it. I don't think I'd have it as a permanent car, but fine for a weekend. See the pictures of it on the Rock and Road Pod Instagram. Okay, it's time for any questions. Phil Martin says, Leona, what's got a hazelnut in every bite? Before we even had a chance to think about this, someone called Daz answered Phil on Twitter with the answer, squirrel shit. Thank you for that, guys. Uh, Matt Owen, any mug news, Leona? Yes, I know I've been promising to get you some Leona Graham mugs to have your tea in during Tea Break Trivia, and I've promised to keep ordering them, and I haven't done it. Uh, but I do make one more promise. I'm going to do it soon. Edward, if you hadn't got the break into radio, what do you think you would have ended up doing? Uh, I'd have gone into some form of arts and entertainments because I did some work experience with my dad when I was 15, which was in an office, and I hated it so much. I thought, I do not want to do this. I need quite an active job. Radio isn't very active, actually, just sitting in a studio. But I was going to be an actor originally, an actress, and I went to university with that in mind. When I got there, I went to join the Drama Club Society and I found everybody very pretentious and up themselves. And I thought, no, this is not for me. On the same day, I noticed the local student radio station doing an outside broadcast in the students' union. And it was like a massive light bulb moment. This is it. I'm going to be a DJ. I knew immediately because I was already one of those annoying people that made everybody mixtapes at school and said, you must listen to this. Don't listen to the current pop music in the charts. I want you to listen to this. And I would force and ram my music choices down everybody's throat. I thought, yes, being a DJ, this is a combination of sort of performance and acting skills and music. So it was just 
That was the answer for me. So if I hadn't have gone into radio, something else to do with music or acting. Okay, not sure what, but, you know, something along those lines. Lee Cook, what are your greatest personal achievements you are proud of? Your three best, maybe. Okay, good question. Creating a family, something I didn't think I would do, and I ended up doing to the extreme with two boys and two girls. Um, also, getting on the radio and probably more so staying on the radio. It's one thing to get into radio, it's another to keep your job because especially at quite a, um, a turbulent time when I joined radio in the 90s, moving into the noughties, local radio stations were being axed left, right and centre um, and they still have been over the last 20 years to the point where just two major groups seem to run every single radio station in the country. But when I started, local radio was, was that. There was lots of independent local radio stations so if you were rejected at one local radio station, you could apply to another and there was loads of different outlets for people people like me but of course by two major brands owning everything the other thing they do was consolidate all the DJs and have them broadcast from one central point with perhaps a little bit of local news so during this turbulent time DJs were being axed left right and center and if you could get a, a, a contract for a second year in a row you were really achieving something well I've done 22 years coming up for 23 years on one radio station so that for me is an achievement I'm proud of and the last one is doing up properties. In all of those years that I've been doing radio, especially during those times when I was just doing, doing the weekend show on Absolute Radio, I did weekend breakfast for a while or I did Friday, Saturday and Sunday nights, and I was often free in the week when I wasn't sitting in for someone else, I would do up properties and that's where I learnt all my DIY skills and I'd be quite happy to work all day, all evening, seven days a week doing that and then either letting out the property or uh, selling it and making a profit, culminating in the house that we have here in Wimbledon and then the one in Brighton, Brighton Rock House, which is my holiday let. At one point I had about four or five different properties on the go but I couldn't actually cope with all that because there was all different issues with, with tenants and and things and this kind of coincided with me doing my main show on absolute radio 10 a.m to 1 p.m which i've done for the last five years or so and i couldn't then deal with all the different properties so i started getting rid of them and then putting everything into just these two properties the wimbledon one and the brighton one and the Airbnb hasn't got any long-term tenants in it, so I don't have all of those issues that you get as a landlord these days with long-term tenants. I unfortunately had some bad experiences. Hi to Richard Dawson. Leona, will we see you at Motorcycle Live next month? Ah, oh, another thing I'm proud of is my connections with Honda, who have, I'm so pleased to say, hired me again to do some video footage of Motorcycle Live. So I will be there. I think I'm going on Sunday the 20th of November. It might be the Saturday the 19th as well. Not sure on that. I'll let you know on Twitter and all the socials. But yes, going to Motorcycle Live. Love it. Well, that is it from the Rock and Road podcast this week. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for listening. Please do look at the socials at Rock and Road Pod for all the photographs that accompany this week's episode. And I'll catch you next time.